Well, this week marks the opening ceremonies of the 2016 Rio Summer Olympics. Roughly 10,000 athletes competing on behalf of over 200 countries over about two weeks and 28 different events. And I love it. I love the Olympics, the fanfare, the flags, the opening ceremony with some classy outfits and some rather bizarre outfits that the teams will wear. The, the triumphs and then the, just the agonizing tragedies as you watch the competition. There are those sports we love, perhaps like basketball or track and field. There are those sports you ought to love, like water polo. Every four years, this is your chance. It'll be on like ESPN 4 at 2 in the morning, no joke. But I mean, you can watch, you can join me, celebrate water polo at any rate. But then there are those sports we just shake our heads at, like the trampoline. In the Olympics, or badminton. Maybe it's because I don't understand it. I don't know. But there's just nothing like the Olympics. And I think part of the allure for me, it's all the training. It's all the preparedness the athletes put themselves through for years. Immersing themselves in their sport, often in obscurity. It's estimated that most athletes will have given 10,000 hours of training before their first and likely only Olympic competition. Just to put that in perspective, that's four hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year for 10 years. That's the kind of time these athletes have put in all for what? For a two-minute swim, for a 10-second sprint, and to think that 99% of those athletes will return home empty-handed. And if you're one of the fortunate and the gifted 1%, right, who somehow didn't get sick as they traveled down to Rio or had a good, had a good event, had a good competition, one of those 1%, then maybe you get to stand on that podium for a few fleeting seconds of fame. And if, if it's gold, right, the chance to do some interviews when you get back home before you return to normal life. Now, if you're a Christian, all of that, should cause you to stop and just to ponder for a moment. Because the Bible likens the Christian life to a race, a race where the prize is not a medal that can be lost or stolen. It's not something we have to put in a safe deposit box. It's not a six-month endorsement deal from some local car dealer. It's not a picture on a cereal box that we're just going to toss in the trash when we're done. No, it's the prize of heaven, the prize of a body that will never need a recovery day, the prize of a body that will never know the prodding of a physical therapist. It's the prize of living without sin, without shame, without regrets, the prize of knowing and being known by God for eternity. Friends, we marvel at the commitment, at the preparedness of Olympians for but a few fleeting, possible moments of glory. Well, so how are you then? How are you preparing for an eternity of glory? Right? How are you preparing for an eternity of glory if you are a Christian? Are you even preparing at all? Are you even preparing at all? Well, that question gets us back to the summer series we've been in in the parables 
earthly stories with heavenly meaning. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the parable of the persistent widow, or as some of your Bibles may sort of give the subheading, the the parable of the unjust or the unrighteous judge. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to turn with me now, Luke 18, chapter 18, verse 1. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the, the seat back before you, I think you can find it on page 877. Yeah, page 877. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Let's read. And he, referring to Jesus, told them, the disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, like the parable we thought about last week with the, uh, with the sort of dishonest manager, this parable also can leave us scratching our heads a little bit as we're done. I mean, are, are, is Jesus comparing God to this unrighteous judge? Is God reluctant to hear us? Are we but a nuisance? Are we but an annoyance like that fly that's constantly buzzing about his head, pestering him with our many requests and needs? Now, thankfully, Luke actually puts the explanation to the parable right on the front end. Normally, you know, as we go through a parable, we've got to wait until the climax, and it's usually there at the climax as we look carefully at the parable that the key to unlocking the meaning is there at the end. But in this case, Luke has actually given us the key in the very first verse, and he's opened the door to the meaning for us. He says, he told them, the disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. So at one level, this parable is a parable about prayer. And yet the context, the concern that occasioned the telling of this parable is back there in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. The Pharisees, we learn there, wanted to know when will the kingdom of God come? They want to know when will the kingdom of God come? The context here is all about Jesus' second coming. And in Luke 17, verses 22 to 37, Jesus assures his disciples that he will come. The day will come, so they need to be prepared so that they won't be caught unaware as it was with Noah in the days of the flood or as it was with Lot and with his wife. 
Jesus knows that his delay can so easily breed discouragement amongst his disciples, and so he gives us this parable so that we ought always to pray and in that delay not lose heart. Notice how the parable ends in verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Right? Jesus is connecting the coming of his kingdom with the kind of prayerful lives that ought to mark those who are awaiting his arrival. And so I think the point of the parable is simply this. Pray persistently while you wait expectantly. All right, pray persistently, you know, as or while you wait expectantly. Jesus isn't saying, you know, it's sometimes you ought to pray. Sometimes you ought to pray. You know, pray when you're in a particular bind. He's not saying pray as a last resort or, or you should pray when all else fails. It's not pray when you feel like it or when someone reminds you to, or just when you read your Bible in the mornings, or just when you come to church on Sunday. Jesus gives the parable so that we ought always, always to pray. Not as in every second, but as in again and again, continually, regularly, in the car, you know, on the run, in the meeting, in the midst of that conversation, pray Jesus is saying, pray always, and to encourage them so that they won't lose heart and they would persist in prayer, he gives this parable. And in the parable, what do we have? We've got two characters. And the first character we're introduced to is that of a judge, a judge who we learn right away neither fears God nor respected men. And you've got to stop right there. If you're a Jew, this judge is your worst nightmare. You know, we saw in the parable of the Good Samaritan a few weeks ago how the very thing that's to define Israel and that's to define Christians is a love for God and a love of neighbor. And yet, this man possesses neither. And he's a judge. And when you go back to the Old Testament, King Jehoshaphat, when he was establishing judges, the one thing he particularly required of judges in Second Chronicles 19.7 was that they fear the Lord. And this man, the first thing we're told is that he doesn't fear the Lord. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't love his fellow man. He is the worst possible advocate. He's the anti-judge. He's the kind of judge who is only going to do when it's right, you know, when it's in his own self-interest. It'd be something like having, you know, a Nazi SS officer as judge over a local Jewish community. You know, if you're in that community, there is just no chance, no shot, you're going to get justice from a guy like this unless it's in his own self-interest. That's the first character. And then the second character we're introduced to is a widow, a widow, the most defenseless and helpless in ancient Near East societies. Without the care and protection of a husband, they, they are the personification of vulnerability. It's why in the Old Testament we read that God has such great care and concern for widows. Deuteronomy 10.18, God is the one who defends the cause of the widow. He's the one who places a curse. He places a curse on those who withhold justice from the widow. Deuteronomy 27, 19. 
So see what's being presented. We have a powerful and pitiless judge coming into contact, right, with, with a defenseless and with a vulnerable widow. He can act with absolute impunity, and there is nothing this widow can do about it. There's not a thing she can do. We read in verse 3, she kept coming to him, demanding justice. We're not told what the dispute was. It wasn't uncommon, sadly, for widows. You know, their husbands died. They were supposed to be cared for by his estate. But sometimes the, the husband's family would cut her out. Perhaps she had been cut out, demanding justice. The Bible doesn't tell us what it was. But it's clear that this poor woman, she's got no power. She's got no prestige. She's got no prosperity. She can't hire a lawyer to defend her case. All she has, all she has is her persistence. All she's got. And in verse 4, we read there, for a while. For a while, the judge refuses. He refuses. We envision her showing up again to the courthouse, trying to make her case. And the judge spies her in the back and barks out to the bailiff, get her out of my courtroom. I've already ruled in this one. Get her out. And yet, verse 5, we see that this woman's persistence, right, it pays off. Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, the image we have is, you know, she's turned out of the courtroom, but she doesn't give up. So she stands outside on those courtroom steps. So when the judge leaves that courthouse, he's confronted with her again. She's demanding justice. When he goes to the country club for lunch and he comes out to his car, there she is again, demanding justice. When he wakes from his palatial estate, he gets in his car, goes out that, that gate of his estate. There she is outside the gate demanding justice. Everywhere he turns, she's there continually demanding justice. Unrelenting, unceasing, untiring, unabating. There she is. And because of her dogged, because of her, uh, her, her, tenacious, her tenacious persistence, what do we read? Verse 5, that she will not beat me down by her continual coming so that she won't be, beat him down. He relents. She simply wears him down. That persistence pays off for her. And he relents. You know, I read, uh, I read of a rancher in Colorado. And when his National Geographic subscription ran up, the subscription office made a little mistake, inadvertently, some computer glitch, and sent him... 9,000 renewal notices. 9,000 individual renewal notices to the man's residence. And finally, the man fed up, got in his truck. He drove 10 miles down the road to the nearest post office, and he sent a check-in with this note. And he said, I give up. Send me your magazine. All right. Pray persistently. But is the point that we're to pray persistently so that we sort of beat God into submission, a bit like that Colorado rancher was sort of brought to submission by all those renewal notices, wear him down. Well, that's not what the parable's teaching. The parable works by way of contrasts, by way of contrasts. It's a how much more kind of argument. So similar to the one Jesus makes back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven eleven, he says to the disciples, if you then who are evil... 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so I want to highlight two contrasts in the parable. They're going to sort of work as kind of two sub-points to that pray persistently as you wait expectantly. Right, two contrasts, and the first is this. Pray persistently as you wait expectantly because God's not like the heartless judge. Because God's not like the heartless judge. You know, verse 7 is rhetorical. And will not God give justice? And of course, you're to say, yes, he will give justice. He is the defender of the widow. He is the father to the fatherless. Jesus is contrasting the worst in man to the best in God. And friends, if the unrighteous judge came even to the widow's aid, Jesus is saying, how much more will God come to your aid? How much more will he come to your aid? You know, as you came in this morning, you were given one of those ministry guides, and you probably received something in it, this little, little bookmark, right? The attributes of God, a generous member, just printed those up, donated them, put them into those ministry guides. And notice on that, on that bookmark, notice how, how God is referred to in the scriptures. What are his attributes? All loving, all good, all just, all merciful. That word all gets to the fact that every one of God's perfections he has infinitely. He has exhaustively. He's not just good, he's exhaustively good. He's not just loving, but he's exhaustively, infinitely, without end or limit kind of loving. God's everything, this judge isn't. Friends, I hope you see there's no sense in the scriptures that you have to twist God's arm in order to get his attention. Now, sadly, it's the time of year when my family learns that, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, I've recorded a race in the morning, it's MotoGP, and when I'm watching the race, particularly when it's down to the last few laps, they can call my name, they can say my name a little louder, they can come right by my side, and they can, like, tap me on the shoulder, but they don't really get my attention unless they stand between me and the TV and do a little jig, something to get my attention. But I hope you realize that's not how God works. That's not how he works. We don't have to do a little jig before God to get his attention. He doesn't treat us like a bother. He doesn't tell us, hey, come back when the race is over. I'm a little busy right now. We don't have to bend his ear to us because we have his ear already. So we can come to him. We can come to him regularly, confidently, transparently, and trust that he's going to be there for us. Martin Luther, I think he captured it where he's, well, he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. It's laying hold. It's grasping onto his willingness. I wonder if that's the God you pray to. One who is both infinitely just, yes, 
and also infinitely merciful. One who is simultaneously upholding the universe in the palm of his hand and yet not too busy to be bothered by the most trivial of your needs. I mean, think, how do you pray? When you pray, do you repeat the same phrases over and over again because you think the quality of your prayer is dependent upon the quantity of your words? Realize if you pray like that, you're treating God like he's the unrighteous judge. Do you pray because you think God is ignorant and so you need to inform him of your needs? Again, you're mistaking God and treating him like the unrighteous judge. Do you pray because you assume that you've got to prevail upon God? You've got to convince him of your need. Get his attention. Again, you're treating God like the unrighteous judge. Do you find yourself searching for the right phrase or treating scripture like a formula where if you just get the right words and the right order, you can compel him to act on your behalf? Do you pray and keep praying because you think that in doing so you can convince God by your piety of the worthiness of your prayer? Friend, if you pray in any of these ways, realize Subconsciously, you're treating God like the unrighteous judge. You assume that by your many words or by just the right expression, you can again compel him to act. But prayer, when Jesus taught on prayer, when he warned the Pharisees in Matthew 6 about the kind of prayers that honor the Lord, he taught the prayer, it's not a mechanical exercise where we repeatedly harass this reluctant and disconnected deity with the right formula in order to sort of manipulate him into answering. God is not ignorant that you need to instruct him, nor is he hesitant that you need to persuade him. Listen, hear that again. He's not ignorant that you need to instruct him. He's he's not hesitant that you need to persuade him. He is the gracious Father who loves his children and who leaps at the opportunity to meet them in their need. We don't need to badger him into submission. We don't need to conjole him in some way into action. He doesn't take twisted delight in our own plights. You know, any more than when we watch the suffering of our own children, we don't take delight in their own plights. He's not saying, you know, listen, you are a rather sorry and weak and pathetic excuse for Christians. So I'm just going to let you pray a little longer until I answer that one. Now, sadly, we sometimes think about God like this, and we do treat him just like the unrighteous judge. But he is, he is our perfect heavenly father, the one who calls us to pray to him expectantly, and persistently, for he will answer our prayers. Properly understood the character of God, that ought to embolden us to be constant and to be fervent in our prayers. So we got to pray persistently as we wait expectantly because God's not like the heartless judge. But the second contrast, we got to pray persistently as we wait expectantly. God's not like the heartless judge But the second contrast is also because you're not like the helpless widow. He's not like the heartless judge, and because you're not like the helpless widow. You're not in the same position she's in. You see, when the widow came before this judge, what could she appeal to? 
She had nothing. She had no appeal that she could make. She couldn't appeal to his fear of God. She couldn't appeal to his common love for humanity. She couldn't appeal to his own concern for the downtrodden. She couldn't appeal to to any fame or any shared family connection, some friend in a high position. She was the very definition of destitute and helpless, but not so with the Christian. What does Jesus call his own? Those who call out to him day and night. Verse 7, he refers to them not as destitute widows, but as his elect. As his elect. We're his elect. And I recognize that word election sometimes can make us feel uncomfortable. Maybe you even say, you know, Brad, I don't believe in election. Well, of course you do. If you believe the Bible, you believe in election. The word's all over the Bible. You believe the word. The question is, what do you mean? What do we mean when we use that word? In the Bible, election simply means that we especially belong to God. We're his. We are his. It's what we read in Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, but because the Lord loves you. And I've said before, rightly understood, election isn't this theological doctrine that we wield like a club and we beat others into submission. Election in the scriptures, it's, it's a pillow. It's that doctrine that God gives us that when we're weary and worn, we can lay our heads into it and trust that it's going to bring rest and comfort to our souls. We're his. We're his. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. If you've come this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe just visiting a friend invited you, um, grateful, super thankful you're here. But one thing you need to know about the Bible is the Bible doesn't present all of us as God's children in the same way. Yeah, he's authored all of our lives. All of us are accountable to him. But we all don't have that same claim upon him. Whether or not we like it, the message of the Bible is that all of us, in our sin, we choose our own way. We regularly will follow our own desires. And we will walk away from God's plan. And in our sin, that constant propensity to do what we want and not what God wants that, the Bible says, for that we've, all of us have earned judgment for our own sins. But the hope that the Bible holds out to us is that the God that we have thus offended, he's actually taken that offense for us. In Jesus Christ, God sent his own son, living how we have not lived, perfectly obeying the will of his Father, and the offenses of our own sins, he bore those himself on the cross putting them to death, and then rose again from the grave, conquering life, doing away with sin once and for all. And so to those who see their sin and see their need to be reconciled to God, there is a way. Jesus has made that way through his death and resurrection. As we turn away from our sin, as we look to God, as we trust in him, non-Christian friend, recognize the best way that you prepare for the end. It's by trusting in him today. It's by turning from your sin today and the promise that he will have you as his own. 
Now, Christian, because we are uniquely God's, we are part of his family, and God, in calling us and making us his treasure possession, we have his very reputation. We have that upon us. And on that basis, we can make a claim before God that the widow never could make upon this unjust judge. Friends, when we come to God, we come to one who has chosen us, who knows us, who cares about us, who has died for us, who has a plan for us, who will come back for us. That's the God we come to every time we pray. And if that doesn't drive you to prayer, you need to check your pulse. The fact that we've been chosen by God assures us that we will also certainly be heard by him. And now I know, though. I mean, we we pray, and you're thinking, I pray. It doesn't feel like my prayers are being heard. We pray and we wait, but, but maybe nothing happens, or maybe the wrong thing happens. It seems as if our prayers go unanswered. And we assume, you know, if we're still waiting, that maybe it's because God has withdrawn from us. If he delays, maybe we assume it's because he's for some reason denied or disowned us. But if that's you, if that's what you're tempted to believe, realize that's exactly why Jesus told this parable. For those in that very situation, so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes his delay, sometimes it is no. Sometimes his delay is to create a dependence upon him. Sometimes his delay is so as to reveal a better way. You know, Paul prayed multiple times for that thorn in his flesh to be removed, and yet God didn't do it, but he gave him something better. His all-sufficient grace. His all-sufficient grace. That was actually even better than the answer that Paul wanted to his prayer. And so often there's so much we don't understand about God, about his time, about his plan. We read in Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In those moments, we've got to cling to texts like this, to the character of God, to promises of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We pray persistently while we wait expectantly. For God, he sometimes does delay, yes, but he always comes. He always comes. And when he comes, verse 8, We read it will be speedily, it will be swiftly, it will be suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And yet many will mock in the waiting, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the claim made, 2 Peter 3. And so Jesus closes, and he says at the close, when the Son of Man comes, Son of Man, that's just an expression Jesus uses to refer to himself. When I come, Will he find faith on the earth? That's how the parable closes. Will he find faith on the earth? God is faithful to his people, but will his people prove faithful to him? Jesus is teaching us that we show ourselves faithful by praying persistently as we wait expectantly. Prayer displays our dependence while we wait for his deliverance. 
prayer, it displays our own dependence while we wait for his deliverance. And we need to be reminded of this because so often we don't pray as we ought to. We don't pray simply to give God praise. We don't pray quick prayers of thanks when all these things we've requested of God and he starts bringing them about. We don't pray in that moment when someone tells us they're hurting. We're thinking, oh, we're in a parking lot or we're in the foyer. I'll just, I'll pray for you. And then we walk away and we entirely forget to pray for the person. We like to be in control, right? We like to live by our own strength. And it's only when, we, when we're stuck, that's when we so often first think about reaching out. You see, prayer requires us to pause our own plans and to call upon God to perform his. It requires us to say, I need help. I'm insufficient, but you are sufficient. And that's hard for us to do. You know, so often we pray and sadly I'll pray and I'll think, okay, now I need to go do something. I need to accomplish something as if all that I've just done hasn't accomplished anything. I just lost two minutes, you know, that I could have devoted to solving that problem. You know, we had a moment in our uh, first part of our church conference last Sunday where there was one, who there was a guest who was amongst us who was, who was quick to share and, and interrupt and just give her thoughts and opinions. And it wasn't in any way malicious. It was entirely harmless. But it was a bit distracting, and the meeting was slowing down. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what can I say when I get the mic to try to push us along? Whose eye can I catch to go try and have a conversation? I'm thinking all these things. I'm trying to plan all these ways. And I stop, and I think, you idiot. You're a pastor. Just pray. Just pray. I, I can't do anything in that moment. I don't have a mic. I, I can't easily go there. Just pray. And the Lord met the need. But so often it is. It's just till we've come to the end of ourselves, right? We've got to exhaust our own resources before we even think to call upon his. Friends, all that reveals is that our fundamental problem is not in our circumstances. It's actually in ourselves. Prayerlessness is a form of pridefulness. Realize prayer dies when faith has already failed. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Those words haunt me. Those words reveal how faithless I so often am. So friends, don't, don't give up in prayer. Don't give up in prayer at all times of day, in every situation, large or small. There is no problem too big for our God, nor is there any concern that is too small for him. You can't wear him out by your continual coming. You know, our, our two oldest daughters, we're getting to that point where with you know, travel and being at friends and babysitting or what have you, we thought, you know, for safety and the rest, it would be great for them to have a phone. And we had two older iPhones, and so we put them on to our plan, and we learned pretty quick that our two oldest girls are utter data hogs. Two weeks into our plan, I get a note from Verizon, you're 95% done. I'm thinking, 95%, what have I done? I looked up, lo and behold, those two had eaten through the vast majority of the data. So what am I doing? I'm rationing them. Like, you got two minutes, that's it. No more time. But realize it's not like that with God. We're not on a calling plan with him. God doesn't ration our minutes. We can come to the God of the universe whenever we want. 
for as long as we want, about anything we want, and not fear that he's going to turn away from us in boredom or disgust or say, I'm sorry, your time's up. Friends, I hope that encourages you to pray bold prayers. Some say prayer is all about how God changes us. And that's partially true. Right? But don't pretend like prayer doesn't actually change things. Spurgeon once referred to prayer as that slender nerve that moveth the muscle of omnipotence. Right? We're not fatalists. We're Christians. Our prayers matter. God ordains the ends as well as the means, and your prayers are part of those means. So pray that God would change your circumstances. That is a good and a, and a right thing to pray. I love the story of George Mueller here. He ran a Christian orphanage in the late 19th century in Bristol, England. And over, it said over 10,000 orphans were fed and housed and educated through, as the result of his care. Uh, but he, his stories of answered prayer are just legion. But one of them that's particularly fun is he's, he's up working on a sermon and the matron of one of the orphanages come over, comes over and says, listen, the 300 kids, they're there in the hall. They're ready to eat, and the cupboards are empty. We have nothing for them. And so Mueller puts his pen down, and he says, all right, I'll take care of it. And then he, he, he prays as he walks down to that hall, and then he gets up before 300 blissfully unaware children that there's absolutely nothing for him to feed them. And he gives thanks to God for the food they're about to receive. That's how he prays. He gives thanks to God for the food we're about to receive. And I gotta tell you, I'd be too scared to pray that prayer. If someone else did it, I'd probably say, you know, that person's being irresponsible. But he prayed big because he knew he had a big God. And lo and behold, no sooner had those children taken their seats when a baker shows up at the door. And for whatever reason, at 2 a.m., he had been burdened to bake bread for the orphanage. And so he had been up for hours baking bread, and he showed up at the door right as the children were seated and said, I have bread. Could you use it? And so there they were, bellies getting full upon that bread, and then it wasn't but a few minutes later that there's another knock on the door and there was a milk cart passing by outside and it just so happened right out in front of the orphanage the wheel broke and the man couldn't fix it with all the weight. And so he walked up. He said, by any chance, could you all use a bunch of milk? Of course we could. And they drank. Right, God met the need. He prayed big and boldly and God met the need. It was Mary, Queen of Scots. She said of John Knox, I fear Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Right? Be persistent. Pray boldly before God. And yet, when we look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament, one of the striking things about his prayers is that his prayers for his friends contain very few, if any, appeals that their circumstances would change. So as much as you pray for your circumstances to change, pray even more for his grace. Pray even more for his understanding. Pray that you would embrace him, whatever he would bring your way. 
in prayer, we, we lay hold of God's love, of his power, of his omnipotence. We might not always gain from our circumstances, but we will always gain him. We always gain him in prayer. And what better gift could we receive in prayer? So don't worry if you don't know exactly what to say. Don't fear if you stammer or if your words seem feeble or if your language is poor. I promise Jesus can understand you. So if you struggle to pray, right, let your Bible reading guide your prayers. When you read, just think to yourself, what is... What is the Bible revealing about God that I could give praise to him for? What is the Bible teaching about myself? Maybe sins I need to confess that I would better know myself. How am I going to use this text to pray better for those around me, for members of this body? If you need encouragement, take a biography like George Mueller's and just read it and be encouraged about how God answers prayer. Or take Paul Miller's The Praying Life. Consider reading that. Pray with one another. You know, this is a lost art. We talk about our prayer closets, but we don't often pray together. Get together with another Christian. Pray with them. Let them encourage you in their prayers. Let them teach you about how to pray, how to come before God. You can be faithful and persistent. You come to Sunday night services. Doing them once a month. Next one, August 14th, 5.30 in the chapel. We're gathering so as a church, we can pray for needs of the church together. In September, starting, I think, the 11th. The 11th, yes. Every other week, we're going to be praying You know, at the church conference on Sunday night, I talked about some of the changes on Wednesday night. One thing that's not changing is prayer at 6 p.m. Pray with those faithful saints, with Wayne, with Mildred, with Patterson, with Debbie, with others. Pray with them. See what God might do as we pray together. And know that as we pray, you know, with, with confidence, one way or another, we know that God will answer us when we call. We know that he will answer us when we call. Because there was one terrible day when he did not answer Jesus when he called. And a fellow pastor put it well. He said Jesus' prayers, Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. Friends, the Olympics is, it's upon us, almost. And we're going to witness some of that preparation, the hours. We're going to see men and women who've given their entire lives but for seconds of uncertain glory. We are called to prepare ourselves, but not for mere seconds and not for uncertain glory. We're called to prepare ourselves for the glory of eternity, not for that which is unknown, only possible, but for that which is certain because Christ has won it for us. And every day, we get to show how we're preparing for that day by praying regularly and persistently to the Lord of that day. So friends, how will you now prepare for that day? Friends, when he comes, when he comes, what will he find you doing? 
Let's pray. Oh God, we're grateful for your word, for the way it reminds us of the compassionate and sufficient and loving Savior that you are, not like the unrighteous judge, not heartless like that man, and we're not helpless like that widow. God, we pray that our lives would be marked by the kind of prayer that would prepare us well for that day when you come and that would help us to prepare others so they too would be ready on that day when you come. In Christ's name, amen.